Hey, moms and dads. This episode is kid-friendly. This episode is kid-friendly. For creatures like me. Who are you eating? <laughs> when you're alive, life can be fun. Go to the forest where the shadows do run. They're coming soon. They can hear you. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Sit back, relax, and prepare to get spooked one more time. Just to recap, there is no language, no anything that's not suitable for kids. This one is called Only If You Dare, 13 Stories of Darkness and Doom by Josh Allen and illustrations by Sarah J. Coleman. This story is called The Substitute. It was October 31st. Halloween, and Hazel walked into life science class a few minutes early. Only, Miss Jacobson wasn't in her usual spot next to the whiteboards. Instead, a thin man with a long black beard stood in her place. A substitute, Hazel whispered as she slid into her seat next to Ava, her best friend. But she'd never seen a substitute like this before. For one thing, the man at the front of the class was wearing a suit, a black one, with a black tie and shiny black shoes. None of the teachers at Tidewater Middle School, not even the substitutes, wore suits. Maybe it's a Halloween costume, Hazel thought. And then there was that beard. It went halfway down his chest. The substitute didn't look up as students trickled in. He didn't say hello or good morning. He just stood there beside Miss Jacobson's desk, reading a dusty book. Hazel shrugged at Ava and raised her eyebrows. Maybe, Hazel figured, all of these things, the suit, the tie, the silent reading, had nothing to do with Halloween. Maybe they were substitute teacher tricks to keep everyone from trying to get away with anything. When the bell rang, the substitute closed his dusty book and set it on Miss Jacobson's desk. Then he ran his fingers through his beard. Finally, he spoke. Did you know, he said in a high, quiet voice, that octopuses have three hearts? Hazel blinked. Around her, no one said anything. Everyone's faces were scrunched. She turned to Ava, who had begun tapping her pencil on her desk. And snails have teeth, the substitute said. He walked back and forth across the front of the room. His polished shoes made light tapping sounds on the floor. In fact, snails have thousands of teeth. Some of them, as many as 14,000. There was a pause. Students started to whisper. What's going on? Said Miguel Rodriguez. Who is this guy? Hissed Cheryl Jones from the back row. Is this a Halloween thing? Said Noah Height. Hazel turned again to Ava and saw her best friend's eyes had narrowed. Ava, Hazel knew, hated Halloween. Haunted houses, spooky movies, scary pranks. She didn't like any of it. 
She called Halloween the worst of all holidays. If this was a Halloween thing, Ava wasn't going to like it. Not a bit. Bats, the substitute continued, are the only mammals that can fly. Bats, thought Hazel. So this is a Halloween thing? She raised her hand. Uh, excuse me, she said. But who are you exactly? A few kids chuckled. I'm your substitute, the bearded man said. My name is Walter Fernsby, but I guess you could call me Mr. Fernsby. Walter Fernsby? Hazel thought, that's an old person's name. But the substitute didn't look old. He had smooth, pale skin with straight white teeth. He lifted a blue binder off Miss Jacobson's desk and held it up. I see here, he said, wagging the binder, that Miss Jacobson would like me to teach you a lesson today on the different parts of a cell. He put the binder down. But, he said, leaning forward and dropping his voice, I'll bet you've had loads of lessons on cells before. He smiled. Hazel tilted her head. It was true that she'd sat through dozens of lessons on cells, or hundreds even. But what was the substitute's point? Where was he going with this? Hazel looked up and down the rows of her classmates. Around her, there was a buzz in the air, an excitement. It was Halloween, and something was happening. Something different. A few desks over, Miguel Rodriguez was actually smiling. In the front row, Noah Haight was sitting up. Even Mary Kunyaki had switched off her cell phone and set it in front of her. Next to Hazel, though, Ava was still tapping her pencil on her desk. Last Halloween, she and Ava had gone to one of those haunted corn mazes, and Ava had started crying after five minutes. She ended up sitting on the ground with her eyes shut tight and her hands clamped over her ears. Hazel had to put her arms around Ava and walk her out. But sometimes when the two girls watched movies together, Ava would close her eyes in the middle of a scary part and say, tell me when it's over. Hazel would always make sure everything was safe before she'd say, it's fine now, Ava, you can look. Well, since I am a substitute teacher, Mr. Fernsby went on, I thought that today I might teach you a substitute lesson. In the next desk over, Ava raised her hand. Can you please just teach us about cells? She said. Hazel thought she heard a slight quiver in Ava's voice. The substitute didn't answer. He took a few steps across the front of the room. He seemed to be waiting for something. What's the substitute lesson about? Noah Haight asked. He was leaning forward with his elbows on his desk. Mr. Fernsby looked around the room and made eye contact with a few students. The substitute lesson is about them, he said. And the way he said the word them, slow and looming with a bit of a growl, made Hazel open her mouth slightly. She turned to Ava. It'll be okay, she whispered. Who are them, said Cheryl Jones from the back row. Them are the biggest mystery in all of life science, Mr. Fernsby said. Them are creatures, stranger even than the three-hearted octopus and thousand-toothed snail and flying mammal bats all put together. Them are much more monstrous. Mr. Fernsby stroked his black beard with one hand. A Halloween eeriness filled the room. Hazel checked Ava again. 
Her pencil tapping had become faster. Did Miss Jacobson arrange this? Hazel wondered. A Halloween prank didn't seem like something she'd do. Hazel squinted at Mr. Fernsby. Are you talking about snakes or something? said Miguel Rodriguez, smiling wider than Hazel had ever seen him. Is this some lesson about, like, reptiles? I am not, Mr. Fernsby said, talking about reptiles. I'm talking about creatures, about real-life monsters. Them. They don't have any other name. Probably did once, but they're incredibly old, ancient. Even they, it's said, have forgotten what they were once called. Hazel's neck grew hot. Beside her, Ava pursed her lips. Around the class, whispering started up again. I love Halloween, said Cheryl Jones from the back row. What kind of substitute is this? said Tarek Haddad. Do you think Miss Jacobson knows about this? said Miguel Rodriguez. Hazel looked at Ava. There's no such thing as monsters, she said. She'd meant this only for Ava, but Mr. Fernsby must have heard her because suddenly he was staring at her. He took a few steps down her aisle. Everyone fell silent. Mr. Fernsby raised his eyebrows. No such things as monsters, he said. Are you certain? He moved back to the front of the classroom where he smoothed his suit and his tie. He ran his fingers through his beard once more. A cold wave seemed to wash over the class. Best class ever, said Miguel Rodriguez. Already, this is the best class ever. Next to Hazel, Ava unpursed her lips. Can you please just teach us about cells? She asked again. But Tarek Haddad spoke. Forget cells, he said. I want to hear more about these monsters. What do they want? Other students nodded. Hazel looked at Ava. It's fine, she mouthed. Them, Mr. Fernsby said want the same thing that every creature on earth wants to stay alive for a long time which them do they live on and on for thousands of years hazel couldn't believe what she was hearing in her own life science class how noah Haight said how do they live for so long mr fernsby nodded they touch you he lifted a finger that's all they touch you and when they do They drain away the life you have inside of you. He began to walk back and forth across the front of the class. Say, for example, that you're going to live for another 50 years. When one of them looks at you, it knows this. It can see it. And if this thing touches you, it can steal away some of those years. Maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe more. For them, it's like drinking. They swallow your years up, and then they use those years for themselves. Your life gets shorter, and theirs gets longer. That's how they, how them, are so old. Mr. Fernsby looked back at Noah Haight. They've taken so many years from so many people for so very long. Hazel turned to Ava again. Ava's eyes were closed, as if this was a scary part in a movie. Hazel could practically hear her saying, Tell me when it's over. From the back row, Cheryl Jones said, What did them look like? Mr. Fernsby raised a finger. An excellent question, he said. He took a few steps down Cheryl Jones' row. Them 
look just like you and me, young lady. That's one reason they're such a mystery. We can't track them down. We can't study them. They blend in perfectly. They look like men, women, and children. There could be one in this classroom right now. He opened his arms wide, and you would have no idea. Everyone shifted and looked around as if they were checking for suspicious students among the rows of desks. Hazel kept her eyes locked on Mr. Fernsby. Mostly, I've heard that them like places where young people gather, he said. Places where there is much life left to be lived. I've heard they spend their time in parks or playgrounds or schools. Schools, Hazel thought. Can you please tell us about cells now? Ava said, trying one more time to change the subject. She'd opened her eyes, but her voice came out quiet. We have a test coming up. Before Mr. Fernsby could answer, Tarek Haddad spoke. Tell us more, he said. Tell us about how them drink your years and use them for themselves. Ah, Mr. Fernsby said, you want an example. He walked up and down the aisles. His polished shoes made light tapping sounds on the tile floor. The furnace kicked on, and Hazel wondered what Mr. Fernsby would do next. Then he stopped. Hazel couldn't believe it. Right next to Ava's desk, he pointed at her. How old are you, young lady? He said. Eleven, Ava said. Her voice came out barely louder than a whisper. Eleven, Mr. Fernsby repeated. So young. Hazel could see what Mr. Fernsby was doing. He was picking on Ava. Probably, she figured, he'd stopped at Ava's desk because she'd been the one who kept asking about cells. Or maybe, Hazel realized, he'd chosen Ava because he'd seen the way she'd been tapping her pencil or hunching her shoulders, and he knew that he could get a reaction out of her. Let's imagine that you're going to live to be... Mr. Fernsby studied Ava for a second. 91, he nodded. That's 80 years of life you have left in you, young lady. Ava didn't look up. Excuse me, Hazel said. I also have a question about cells. The substitute ignored her. When one of them looks at you, he said, leaning down to Ava, it knows you have these 80 years. It can see them. And to take them, all it has to do is touch you. Maybe it offers to shake your hand. He reached out and let it hang over Ava's desk. Ava shifted to the other side of her chair. Tarek Haddad and Cheryl Jones in the back rows chuckled. Hazel glared at them. If you shake that hand, Mr. Fernsby kept his hand hovering over Ava. That's all it takes. You go still, and then it's this thing that just looks just like you or me. The biggest mystery of all life science drinks some of your 80 years away. And you shrivel up like a raisin, Miguel Rodriguez said, and he laughed. No, Mr. Fernsby said, turning. When one of them is done with you, you look the same as you always did. Only you have a few years left. You're closer to the end. Hazel began kicking one of her desk legs. Wait a minute, said Noah Haight. You said they drink some of your years. They don't take all of them? They do not, said Mr. Fernsby, turning back to Ava. His outstretched hand was still hovering over her. They always leave you something. Maybe one year. Maybe two. Maybe ten. These creatures don't see themselves as murderers. Not really. They think they're just thieves, and what they steal is time. 
Finally, Mr. Fernsby dropped his hand and walked back to the front of the class. Hazel could hear Ava breathing quickly. She remembered the haunted corn maze from last year and the trembling look on Ava's face as she guided her out. She had that same trembly look now. Hazel narrowed her eyes. You're pretty good at making things up, Mr. Fernsby, said Tark. Am I? said Mr. Fernsby, raising his dark eyebrows. Am I making things up? Maybe he's not, said Mary. She raised her cell phone. He was right about the octopus. I looked it up. They do have three hearts. And he was right about snails, too. They have thousands of teeth. Mr. Fernsby didn't speak. He let the question of whether he was telling the truth hang in the air like his hand had hung over Ava. In the next desk over, Ava put her head down. There was nothing Hazel could do for her. She could ask about cells again, but everyone would ignore her. The chance to change the subject was gone. You are, of course, free to make up your own minds about what I've told you today, Mr. Fernsby said. You are free to doubt the life science lesson I have taught you. Or you're free to open your minds to a new possibility. The decision is yours. Hang on, said Miguel Rodriguez. And the smile he'd worn all of classes faded. Is that what this is really about? A lesson about opening our minds? Mr. Fernsby combed his beard with his fingers. This has been a lesson about them, young man, he said. You can do with it what you want. Slumped on her desk, Ava wasn't moving. As far as Hazel could tell, Mr. Fernsby didn't even notice. He talked on and on, and other students seemed to love it. They peppered him with questions. What do people who are getting drained look like? Do you know anyone who has ever met one of them? How many of them are in America right now? It went on for 45 minutes. Finally, the bell rang. Everyone stood up and began to shuffle out of the room. Everyone, that was, except for Ava and Hazel. Best substitute ever, said Noah Haight as he passed Hazel's desk. Halloween rules, said Cheryl Jones. Ava still hadn't moved. Are you all right? Hazel whispered. Ava shrugged. It was only a story. Hazel touched Ava's shoulder. It was a dumb Halloween lesson about opening our minds. You don't need to worry about it, I promise. I just don't like that feeling, Ava said. The one I get when I hear those things. I know, Hazel said. But you're safe. Trust me. At the front of the class, Mr. Fernsby picked up his dusty book from Miss Jacobson's desk. He started reading. He was probably getting ready for his performance in the next class. Hazel could barely look at him. He'd made Ava slump and cower. Somebody, she thought, should do something. I'm going to talk to him, Hazel said. Don't, Ava whispered. He's just a stupid substitute. He picked on you, Hazel said. He did it on purpose. And that was true, but for Hazel, there was something else hanging in the air, something else she needed to do. It'll only take a second, she said. I'll meet you at lunch. She pulled Ava up, and as Ava shuffled through the classroom door, Hazel checked to make sure she and Mr. Fernsby were really alone. She walked to the front of the class. She flexed her fingers. She didn't quite know how to start. She wanted to say something to Mr. Fernsby about what he had done, about how he had picked on Ava, and how afterward he'd chosen not to notice her. He was one of those adults, she'd seen so many of them, who think they're being funny when they're really being mean. But she couldn't find the words to tell him this. So instead, she walked up to Mr. Fernsby and asked him a question, one that had been on her mind all class. Where did you hear about them, Mr. Fernsby? She said, 
where did you learn it all? Without looking up, Mr. Fernsby waggled his book. I read a lot, he said. I like old books, the ones most people have forgotten about. Hazel nodded. She knew the books he meant. My friend Ava, she started to say, and then looked down. She didn't know how to go on. Maybe it didn't matter. Some adults never learned anyway. I guess I just wanted to say thank you for the lesson, Mr. Fernsby, Hazel said, and happy Halloween. She reached out her hand. Mr. Fernsby looked at it for a second. It must have seemed strange to him, Hazel realized, being offered a handshake by someone who was one-third his age, or someone who he thought was one-third his age. Hazel smiled innocently. You're a 12-year-old girl, she told herself, just a 12-year-old girl at school. Mr. Fernsby must have believed that, because despite his own story and all the old books he'd read, he smiled and said, Happy Halloween to you too, young lady. He took Hazel's hand. At once, she started drinking. It was true what Mr. Fernsby had said. Them weren't murderers, just thieves. And Hazel had always been generous. She'd always left people at least 10 years or 15, usually more. But as she drank, and as Mr. Fernsby's body went still and his mouth fell open, she remembered the way Ava had slumped in her desk, the way she'd closed her eyes at Mr. Fernsby's words, the way she'd become so silent, so afraid, so afraid of them. And so this time, for the first time, Hazel took everything. The next story comes from Short and Shivery, 30 Chilling Tales, retold by Robert D. Sansuki. This one's titled The Witch Cat, Folklore of the United States, Virginia. One windy March day back in 1850, a handsome young man, whose wife had died the year before, arrived in a small Virginia town. He brought with him his young daughter, a wagon full of household goods and tools, and enough money to buy a small plot of land. The townsfolk were kind and showed him several parcels of land that were for sale. Before he decided, he went walking through the back country and found a nice piece of land beside a wide, still pond. When he asked about it, people said it wasn't owned by anybody. It had once belonged to a family that left those parts after a string of misfortunes. No one said much, though they tried their best to get him to change his mind. But nothing would do except that land for his farm. The people in the neighborhood helped him get started. They had a house raising to build him a cabin and a barn raising the following week. With the last of his money, he bought a horse, a cow, and several chickens. He worked hard clearing the land and getting the fields ready for planting. His daughter milked the cow and fed the chickens. They seemed happy enough, though the townsfolk told one another that such a fine man should get married pretty quick, to give himself the sort of companionship a man needs and give his little girl a mother. Sometimes, when his day's work was done, the farmer would fish for a while on the banks of the pond, staring dreamily out across the waters that turned to gold then red, then purple, as the sun set. One evening, at twilight, he saw a small skiff coming across the water, pulled by a tall, slender figure. 
The glare of the fading sun made it impossible for him to see whether it was a man or a woman on the water. But when the boat was nearer shore, he saw the stranger was wearing a bonnet. A moment later, as the skiff landed smoothly, a young woman's voice called out, Hello, help me up, will you? She extended a delicate hand, pale and fine as bone china, to him. Like a man in a dream, the farmer reached out and took it, helping her out of the boat and onto the shore. The woman pulled off her bonnet and shook her curly black hair free. That feels more to my liking, she said. All that rowing can really wear a body out. For a moment, he didn't answer her. He was fascinated by her wide green eyes, pale skin, and lips as dainty and red as a rosebud. At last, he remembered his manners, removed his hat, and said, Tom Morgan, at your service, ma'am. Are you lost? Not a bit, she said with a laugh. My name is Eleanor Fay. I live across the pond. She gestured toward the far side, where willows and cypresses were tangled together. I figured it was time I called on my new neighbors. Still in a daze, Tom invited her up to his cabin and barn and meet his daughter, Effie. Eleanor oohed and awed as he pointed out the new house and barn and the chicken coop with the coat of fresh paint. But when she reached out a hand to stroke Effie's hair, the child, clinging to her father's trouser leg, began to cry and wouldn't let the woman touch her. Shy little thing, isn't she? said Eleanor with the polite laugh that showed her white teeth. Tom, feeling badly, tried to get his daughter to apologize, but she ran away suddenly. I'm sorry about that, said Tom. She's not usually shy with strangers. No matter, said Eleanor easily. We'll become good friends before long. It was now dark. I have to be going, said the woman. Next time I won't come by so late. Tom walked her down to the shore. He offered to row her back across the pond, but she said, No, I've been a widow for five years and doing for myself. I'll manage fine. It seemed that her pole barely touched the water before the skiff slid quickly and silently toward the shadowed far shore. Tom stood staring for a long time until he could no longer see Eleanor or her boat in the gathering dark. After that, Eleanor came almost every day to visit. Once, she brought a jar of homemade preserves. Another time, it was a lace tablecloth. Tom was enchanted, but Effie hid if she could get away. If her father forced her to stay inside when Eleanor visited, she sulked in a corner, staying as far away from the smiling woman as possible. Eleanor would blink her green eyes, which seemed flecked with gold as if she were holding back tears, but she always made a show of excusing the child's actions. When Effie's father asked her why she acted like that, Effie said, I don't know. I just don't like her, Papa. This bothered Tom a good deal, because he had fallen under the spell of the young woman and was trying to work up enough nerve to ask her to marry him. He never went across the pond to her farm. She said she preferred to visit him and get away from her chores and anything she said made sense to him. In addition to Effie being difficult, Tom was troubled by something getting at his chickens. Night after night, he would be aroused by the blood-curdling cat scream, followed by a fluttering and squawking from the chicken coop. Each time he ran out to see what the matter was, he'd find one or two of his chickens missing and the feathers scattered all around. 
Effie had bad dreams of a huge cat with blazing yellow-green eyes that climbed through the window of her room and curled up on the foot of her bed, waiting for her to go to sleep so it could suck the breath of life from her when she did. One morning, Tom found her barely breathing, and there was a round spot in the bedclothes at the foot of her bed, as if something, a cat maybe, had curled up to sleep there. When Tom went into town to pick up supplies, the townsfolk took him aside and whispered to him that Eleanor was a witch who lived beside the pond because it was enchanted, having been sacred to the Indians who lived there long before the white men had arrived. They also said she had done away with her husband by black magic, though no one was clear how this had been accomplished. The young farmer refused to believe them. You're just jealous of my good fortune, he said. Folks in town shrugged and went on their way. They knew what they knew. His daughter got more sickly, and Tom began to fear for her life. Desperate, he went to the neighborhood conjure man named Zeke Franklin. The old man was a white witch who helped people, especially those troubled by black magic. I can't say for sure who's witching you, said Zeke, but I'll give you something to help. He got a little bottle, and into it he put a dried snail, a mummified spider, and the toes from the left foot of a tree toad. He added a bit of a bat's wing, and then corked it, and tied a string around the neck of the bottle. That'll do her, I reckon, said Zeke. Next, you take your hunting knife, wet it sharp as a briar, and keep it under your pillar. Tom hung the bottle over Effie's bed that night, and from that moment on, she had no more nightmares. But he kept his hunting knife honed to the razor's edge under his pillow. In the morning, Eleanor came to visit him and expressed disgust at the jar Zeke Franklin had given Tom. That's foolishness, she said, sounding downright angry. I don't have any patience for nonsense like that. While Tom tried to explain that the conjure man's jar had kept Effie from nightmares, Eleanor ran back to her skiff and pulled across the pond without ever once looking back at him. Frantic, Tom shouted after her, but she ignored him. In misery, he returned to his cabin where Effie hugged him. That night, something got into the chickens again and tore them apart out of sheer meanness. I may have lost a lot, Tom said angrily the next morning, but I'm not going to lose any more, that's for sure. So he sent Effie into town to stay with neighbors. That night, he moved the few remaining chickens into the barn and hid behind some grain bags near the window. He hadn't been in hiding long when he heard the wind rise, followed by a rumble of thunder. A minute later, rain began pouring on the roof shingles while the wind howled through the cracks in the walls. Tom was not a man easily frightened, but the power of the storm began to make him uneasy. Then he heard a yowl that sent a thrill of terror up his back. A moment later, he heard a pounding on the doors, as if huge fists were beating upon it. Tom raised himself up on the couch. At the same time, a monstrous cat with flashing yellow eyes leaped at him through the window of the barn. The man sliced the air with his knife to defend himself. The briar-sharp blade caught the cat's right paw, severing it completely. The cat gave a shriek of pain, yellow eyes blazing. It fled back out through the window. 
Tom stumbled out of the barn like a man in a nightmare. The line of red drops led toward the shore. Though the rain was washing the trail away, he was able to follow it easily enough. At the water's edge, he saw the mark of a boat's prow in the mud. Far out, where the rain-pocked lake was lit by flashes of lightning, Tom saw a skiff skimming the black water towards the opposite shore. He shouted after it, but the wind and thunder drowned out his cries. In a moment, he had launched his own boat and was rowing across a storm-lashed pond. The storm ended shortly before dawn. The neighbors who had care of Effie came to the farm later, when they had begun to wonder why Tom hadn't come to claim his daughter. Silence lay over the farm. The tracks of a man's boots led down the shore of the pond, now silver in the late morning sunlight. Some brave villagers rode across the lake at noon. On the far side, they found Tom sprawled lifeless on the muddy shore. Clenched in his fist was a severed paw of a cat. In the rude cabin further up the shore, they found Eleanor Fay collapsed face down on the floor. When they turned her over, they found she was dead and her right hand was gone. Okay, for this one, we're back in Only If You Dare, 13 Stories of Darkness and Doom by Josh Allen and illustrations by Sarah J. Coleman. This one's called Lumpy Lumpy. The thing about oatmeal is I hate it. And I don't just hate it a little bit. I hate it with all the force of a thousand exploding suns. When I have to put even one spoonful into my mouth, I gag. Seriously. I retch and the back of my tongue comes up. I have to fight just to keep from puking everywhere. It's the texture. Lumpy, lumpy. Like eating mud or paste or cow droppings. I know what you're thinking. Have you tried it with brown sugar, strawberries and cream, chocolate chips, coconut flakes? Well, the answers are yes, 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 and yes. I've tried oatmeal every which way you can make it, and I don't care what's added to it. It's still gloopy and gross. I mean, if you told me to eat a spare tire and then sprinkled it with chocolate chips, would it make that spare tire any more delicious? Of course not. It would still be a spare tire. It would still be disgusting and inedible, just like oatmeal. So when I sat down for my spot at the breakfast bar one morning and my mom slid my favorite yellow bowl in front of me, I kind of couldn't believe it because it was filled to the brim with, you guessed it, oatmeal, colorless, clumpy oatmeal. Hey, I said, this is, but mom interrupted me. Yeah, Elena, she said, deal with it. But I said, And before I could go on, mom scooped a handful of blueberries from a bowl on the counter and dropped three of them into my favorite yellow bowl. She popped the rest in her mouth. Try it with blueberries, she said, munching and not understanding the whole spare tire chocolate chip thing. Just eat it, Elena. You can't live on cold cereal forever. Mom thinks I'm a picky eater, but is it picky to not want lumpy globs of goo shifting around in your mouth? Is it picky to think that food should be something you have to actually chew before you swallow? Besides, she said, I can't afford to throw away any more food, Elena. I just spent $200 on that. She pointed to where our new microwave hung over the stove. 
Our old microwave had stopped working, so mom had saved for weeks to buy this new one and spent an entire Saturday afternoon installing it. So let's be smart and stop throwing food away, okay? Fine, I said and picked up a spoon. Don't think for a second that I ate any of that putrid oatmeal. While mom fussed around the kitchen, I stirred it and poked at it and tried not to smell it. As soon as mom walked down the hall, I jumped up and scraped it into the garbage. Then I shifted the trash around so the dumped oatmeal would be hidden under a crumpled piece of plastic wrap, a gum wrapper, and an old rubber band. Quickly, before mom came back into the kitchen, I swiped two granola bars out of the pantry and tucked them into my backpack. I planned to eat them on the bus to school so I wouldn't starve to death. And I thought that'd be the end of it. It should have been too. But that night, long after mom and I had gone to bed, something happened. I woke up because I heard something. It was kind of a whirl or buzz. My room was the first one down the hallway and the whirl was coming from the main living area. I could tell. I checked the clock by my bed. It said 3.13. What could be whirling and buzzing at 3.13 in the morning? I stood up and stumbled groggy into the hall. The house was completely dark except for a strange blue light glowing from the kitchen. When I got closer, I could see it was the new microwave, and it was on. There was something inside of it, spinning slowly. Mom? I said. I figured she was making a late night snack. She didn't answer. I checked for her in the chairs at the table and at the breakfast bar. It didn't seem like she was in any of them. There was no movement, no dark shadows. The microwave kept whirling. The blue light shifted as whatever was inside kept on spinning. It was eerie, the house dark except for this one microwave light. The whole kitchen seemed to be bathed in a strange radioactive glow. Mom? I said again. Nothing. The microwave counted down. Seven. Six. Five. What was happening? Was the microwave malfunctioning already, coming on in the middle of the night all by itself? We'd only had the thing three days. The countdown hit two, then one, and the microwave dinged. Its inside light went off, and the kitchen went pitch black, except for the microwave screen, which said end. I switched on a light and squinted against the sudden brightness. Then I opened the microwave door. There was my favorite yellow bulb. It was filmed to the brim with oatmeal. Steam rose from it. I lifted the bowl out slowly, and the sides of it almost burned my fingers. What on earth? I said. The oatmeals had blueberries in it. Three of them. Weird, I thought. Too weird. Hello? I whispered. No one answered. I looked around. This had to be Mom. She must have found my dumped oatmeal and decided to teach me a lesson. Okay, Mom, I said. I get it. I'm not supposed to waste food. I'm sorry. I waited for her to answer, to step out of the pantry and laugh. She didn't. Then I noticed something. There weren't just three blueberries and oatmeal in my favorite bowl. There was other stuff, a crumpled piece of plastic wrap, a gum wrapper, and even a thin rubber band. It was like this was the same oatmeal that I dumped that morning, like someone had scooped it right out of the garbage and caught up bits of trash with it. The hair on my arms prickled. Quickly, I dumped the oatmeal into the trash again. Then I put my yellow bowl in the sink, switched off the light, and practically ran back to bed. Mom didn't say 
anything about the oatmeal the next morning. She even let me eat cereal for breakfast. Yoho O's with a pirate treasure marshmallow, my favorite. I figured she thought I'd learned my lesson and everything was fine. Then night came. For the second night in a row, a whirl and a muffled buzz woke me up. I opened my eyes to check the clock. It was 3.13 a.m. I stumbled out of bed and it was like deja vu. There was an eerie blue light coming from the microwave and there was the spinning bowl inside. There was the countdown. Three, two, one, and the ding, and the green glowing word, end. Then there was me, lifting out my favorite yellow bowl. It was filled with steaming oatmeal, again, and three blueberries. Mixed in, there was a gum wrapper, a crumpled piece of plastic, a thin rubber band, and now a paper clip and a bit of an orange peel. Once more, I scraped it onto the trash. I get it, Mom, I said. Point made. I won't waste food. She had to be hiding in the pantry. I threw the door open. She wasn't there. I checked in the coat closet and under the computer desk. She wasn't anywhere. Shivering a little, I shuffled down the hall. At the door to my mom's room, I turned the doorknob and peered in. She was curled up in bed, eyes closed, hands tucked in front of her. She wasn't snoring exactly, but her breathing was heavy and regular, as if she'd been asleep for a long time. A lump rose in my throat. Before I could think too hard about things, I darted through the house, turning off lights. I slid into bed, pulling the covers all the way over my head. It happened the next night, and the next, and the night after that, at the exact same time, 3.13 a.m., I tried to ignore the microwave and sleep through the whirl and the buzz, or at least stay in bed at 3.13 a.m., but I couldn't. The microwave seemed to have some strange power. The whirl was like music, calling me, like a pod piper. Within a week, bags had formed under my eyes. I kind of stopped sleeping at night. My head dropped in school a lot, and I even fell asleep in math class. One night, I decided to throw away the oatmeal somewhere other than the garbage, somewhere it'd be hard to find. So when I lifted out my favorite yellow bowl, I carried it to the back door. Even though it was cold outside, I slid the door open, stumbled into the bushes by the side of the house, and scraped the garbagey oatmeal into the dirt by our hydrangea bush. It didn't work. The next night, 3.13 a.m., I woke to the sound of the whirl. The oatmeal was back in the microwave, back in my favorite yellow bowl. Now it held three blueberries, a gum wrapper, a crumpled piece of plastic wrap, a paper clip, a bit of an orange peel, a few dirty clods, a weedy looking leaf, and a dead black beetle. It kept going. I stopped sleeping altogether. I would just lie awake in bed waiting for what I knew would come. Whirl, buzz, ding end. In the mornings, I'd stumble into the bathroom, groggy. Before showering, I'd sit at the edge of the tub with my head in my hands. I started napping during lunch. I found a quiet spot in the library between two bookshelves, and I used my backpack as a pillow. More and more junk kept getting mixed in with the oatmeal, a sucker stick, an apple stem, a used crumpled band-aid, after two more weeks, a crust formed on top of the oatmeal, and then bits of mold appeared. There were small spots at first, but they grew a bit bigger each night. Here's a question for you. 
Do you know what it's like to be haunted by a microwave? I bet you don't. I'm probably the only person in the whole long history of the world who understands what it's like to be called out of bed each night, each and every night by a whirling microwave and a bowl of oatmeal. The exact same bowl of oatmeal shoved in your face again and again as it slowly grows dirtier and grosser and moldier. After more than a month, my eyes ached with exhaustion. Red veins spiderwebbed through them. I started falling asleep in the strangest places, at a restaurant, in the dentist chair, on the bus. What's up with you, Elena? My mom asked one night at the dinner table. You seem so tired. It doesn't make any sense. I'm just not sleeping well, I told her. That's all. Then one night, I stumbled into the strange blue light and my arms felt heavy. So heavy. When the microwave dinged and my favorite yellow bowl stopped spinning, I knew it was time to do something. Unless I did, this would keep happening every night for the rest of my life at exactly 3.13 a.m. I would keep growing more and more tired as the whirling and buzzing microwave kept returning my nasty, steaming, putrid bowl of oatmeal, which would be each night a little bit smellier, a little bit dirtier, and a little bit nastier. It was time to eat. I knew that was the deal. I had to eat it to end it. This oatmeal wasn't going to get any better with time. Those moldy spots weren't going to start shrinking, and that crust on top wasn't going to go soft. The mixed-in dirt and Band-Aid and dead beetle weren't going to disappear. If I kept dumping it, the oatmeal would keep getting nastier and nastier. It would turn completely green and fuzzy, and it would start to seep and smell like the bottom of our garbage bin. If I didn't do something soon, It might even become infested with maggots. It was time. Eat it, I thought. Eat it and end it. I reached into the microwave and lifted my yellow bowl, which I realized wasn't my favorite anymore. Slowly, I pulled a spoon from the drawer. I caught a whiff of the oatmeal then, like a sewer drain, and I gagged. I flicked on the kitchen light and immediately wished I hadn't because I saw everything that had piled up in the oatmeal. The gum wrapper, the dirt, the beetle, the rubber band, the paper clip, the plastic wrap, the band-aid, the orange peel, the sucker stick, the wilted weeds, the spots of mold, which were now the size of quarters. But I was tired. Can you understand that? I was so, so tired. So I took my place at the kitchen table, held my breath, plugged my nose. I gripped my spoon. I counted to three and I ate. This story is, again, from Short and Shivery, 30 Chilling Tales, retold by Robert D. Sansuki. This story is Scared to Death from the United States in South Carolina. Some 10 years after the Civil War, the old Charleston mansion named Roseway was ablaze with lights and bursting with music. An orchestra, hired by Stephen Hayward, played waltz after waltz in the huge ballroom in honor of his daughter Sally's 18th birthday. 
Sally, however, had quickly grown bored with the whole affair and had steered a cluster of handsome young men and beautiful young women to the open area at the foot of the magnificent staircase. There she stood, rearranging her pale yellow skirts that rose ruffle upon ruffle to her waist. Her bare shoulders were adorned with the single fall of jet black hair, which tumbled over her left shoulder. A perfect red rose was pinned to her bodice, setting off the whiteness of her skin. Even if she hadn't been mistress of Roseway since her mother's untimely death, or hadn't flirted so outrageously, Sally would have easily drawn the attention of the young men now gathered around her because of her beauty. Her dark eyes, ivory skin, and bubbling laughter charmed men of all ages. At the moment, however, she was quiet. She was looking unabashedly at the tall, dark Peter Beaufort while listening intently to what Alice Cardross, his fiance, was saying. Breathlessly, Alice informed the little cluster of friends. When our carriage passed the graveyard tonight, both horses reared up. I declare I was so frightened I almost lost my wits. I'm sure nothing serious was at risk, said Sally, with a wicked little smile. Gallantly, Peter said, It's certainly spooky there. I've heard the place is haunted. Yes, said Sally, sounding even more bored than before. We've all heard stories. But have you ever seen a ghost, Peter? Don't you believe in ghosts? asked Alice, in a voice barely above a whisper. Not at all, sneered Sally. Only simpletons hold such foolishness. My maid saw a ghost standing by old Daniel Payson's tombstone, said Peter. That's the tallest grave marker, the one that tilts to one side. The ghost was the image of Daniel Payson, who's been dead four years. Bosh, said Sally, with an airy wave of her hand. Your maid dreamed it, or was frightened by a shadow. You never catch me going into the cemetery after dark, said Alice, holding more tightly to Peter's arm. Why, whatever on earth is there to be afraid of, really, wondered Sally, ignoring Alice to stare into Peter's face. Peter, who seemed equally uncomfortable with Alice's clinging and Sally's boasting, said, Come now, Sally, you wouldn't go in there after dark, and you know it. Nonsense, Sally retorted angrily. I'm not as foolish as some people I know. She looked poignantly at Alice. Alice, aware that Sally was making fun of her, cried, If you're so brave, I dare you to go into the graveyard alone, tonight, right now. Oh, very well, said Sally offhandedly. Peter, will you escort me? She stretched out her hand to take his. But the young man put his arm around Alice's shoulder and said, I have never been a man to tempt fate, Miss Hayward. Nor would any of the other young gentlemen surrounding her risk the unknown terrors of the churchyard, even for a chance to escort the lovely Sally. Then I'll go alone, snapped Sally pettishly. The dead couldn't be more dreary company than the rest of you. She sent one of her servants to the cloakroom to fetch her wrap. Wait, said Alice. She ran after the servant and returned with Peter's walking cane, which had a gold handle shaped like a goblin's head. 
While Sally was putting on her wrap, Alice thrust the cane at her, saying, Take this and plant it in the ground by the old man Peyton's crooked tombstone. That way, we'll know in the morning that you really went there. Since my word isn't good enough for you, Miss Cardross, Sally said nastily, you'll find the cane in the morning when the sunlight gives you enough courage to look for it. Then, gathering her long coat around her, Sally Hayward swept out through the front door and into the night. She marched along the moonlit sidewalk to the cemetery, slashing at the air in front of her with the gold-tipped cane, furious at the memory of how Peter Beaufort had defended his fiancée, Alice Cardross, against Sally's best efforts to belittle the other woman. And she grew even angrier at the thought that he remained unmoved by Sally's charms, in spite of the fact that she had flirted with him throughout the whole evening. Sally pushed open the high iron gates in the churchyard wall and stepped through. Inside was complete darkness, except for an occasional tall gray marker gleaming palely in the moonlight. Dimly, the young woman could see the outline of the church steeple on the far side of the cemetery. Though she couldn't make out the face on the clock tower, she clearly heard it chiming midnight. Up until this moment, Sally had been angry and not in the least afraid. But the thick, chill darkness pressed closely in on her, creating shadows that seemed to writhe and clutch at her when she didn't look directly at them. Deciding, with the last burst of resentment, that this was a wretched end to an already spoiled evening, she wrapped her cloak more tightly around her and searched hastily for the crooked tombstone. A part of her was ready to cut and run, but Sally was strong-willed enough to force herself to make good her boast. She would plant the cane before she left or die in the attempt. Keeping this thought in mind, she searched up and down the narrow rows of tombstones until she discovered the crooked marker, shining faintly in the moonlight. She raised the cane to thrust it into the damp soil below the marble slab, and then froze. A sigh, then a loud moan, came from the blackness just beyond the tombstone. A sudden gust of wind, chill and smelling of damp and mold, rushed past her. She was certain that she could hear something coming toward her, something that moved stiffly and wetly and never drew a mortal breath. Stifling a scream, Sally thrust Peter's cane into the ground, then gathering up her cloak, she turned to run. Something caught her. Something held her and would not let her run. She heard a moan and smelled the breath of the open grave. But the more frantically she struggled, the more firmly the horror held her in its grip. Too frightened to scream, she clawed frantically toward the narrow aisle of the tombstones that led back to the gate. But something was tugging at her throat now. In the final spasm of terror, she flung herself forward, only to feel herself dragged back toward the crooked tombstone. At that moment, something burst in her head, and she sank to the ground, mercifully unconscious. When Sally failed to return, Peter and Alice led a party of anxious friends and relatives into the churchyard. There they found Sally, a short distance from the crooked tombstone, dead, her eyes wide open in fear. The end of her cloak was pinned solidly to the ground at the foot of the marble slab, held in place by the deeply planted cane with the gold goblin's head. 
the unfortunate young woman had scared herself to death. To this day, people talk of two ghosts that haunt the old churchyard. One is a tall, shadowy figure of a man. The other is a woman in a pale yellow dress with a long cloak who wears a single red rose in her bodice. We hope that y'all enjoyed these kid-friendly stories. Thank y'all so much for supporting us. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.